verses 1 to 12. We've been going through at various times the Gospel of Mark, and this is the part that we have come to. And this is a very uh, direct and it's a very personal thing that we look at. It is to do with the question of just simply what we do with Jesus Christ. In the course of the kind of, of work that I do, I come across a lot of people who, having grown up in a Christian church, have deliberately and self-consciously turned their backs on Jesus Christ. In its most extreme form, I remember a man who once uh, stood before me and was in front of actually uh, the elders of the church I was in at the time, and he, we asked him, what do you choose? Do you choose to go the route that you have been going, or do you choose to follow Christ? And he said uh, quite clearly and explicitly, I reject Jesus Christ. I've, I've never heard that stated in public in that context. It was really actually quite spine-chilling. But I hear many people, not quite like that, but many people who uh, say, we don't, we don't want anything to do with Jesus, we don't want anything to do with... Usually they say they don't want anything to do with the church or Christianity, and people will say, leave me alone. But one of the sad things is the number of people who come to church, and if we were really to push you, actually what you're saying is the same thing. Uh, This parable that Jesus told, this story that Jesus told, was told to people who believed that they were God's people. And he tells them this story, and it's an extraordinary story because it is extremely direct, it is extremely personal, and it's extremely challenging. The man uh, puts a wall around his vineyard, he plants the vineyard, he digs a pit, he builds a watchtower. The wall is used to mark the territory and to defend against the animals. The pit is for the uh, wine press, it's the trough for the juice under which the grapes were crushed. The tower was used to watch against thieves or animals. And that's the whole scenario. It's just set up there. Then he rents the vineyard to some farmers, and he goes away on a journey. He sends some servants to collect the rent. And normally, in that culture, in that context, it was done after five years, because you let the vineyard grow, you let the crop come, uh, and then they were able to sell some of the grapes or the wine, and so they were able to pay rent. So it was a a fixed and agreed percentage of the crop. Um, David Miller here is trying to get his crop in, and uh, if you rented it, if David had rented it, then he would be getting a a fixed and agreed, or he would pay a fixed and agreed percentage uh, to the landlord. Actually, he is the landlord, so he's okay with that one. Um, But please do actually pray for uh, the Millers as they still get the rest of uh, the harvest in. But that was the normal arrangement and the servant is sent to the tenants to collect, and instead of getting the rent, they seize him, they beat him, and they send him away empty-handed. So those of you who are staying in student flats, I know it's all done by bank now, but in the old days, someone would come and collect your rent. Imagine if they came to one of the the flats on Taylor's Lane or something, and it turned up for rent, you said, sure, come in, you beat them up, you sent them away. Don't come back. It's a rather extreme method for non-payment, but that's what happened here. 
But it gets worse. Sends another servant. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and the farmers are saying, this guy's obviously not getting the message, so they kill him. He sends many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It is a story that as people listen to it and as they would understand the culture and the context of the time, they would be completely horrified. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Of course, he's going to come and he's going to uh, judge these farmers. And Jesus goes straight to verse 10 where he says, this is a, I mean, it is a story, and he then applies a scripture to it. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And it is immediately clear to them that Jesus is talking about them. He is claiming to be the son, and yet their response was they look for a way to arrest him, have him charged, have him killed. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they, they left him alone at that point. It's an unusual story, by the way, because it is both a parable and an allegory. And it helps to understand what the difference between the two things is. A parable has a single meaning and is taken as a whole. An allegory is, uh, depends on a kind of one-for-one significance. So if you treated something like an allegory, you'd constantly be looking for what does this mean? What does the watchtower mean? What does the wine press mean? And so on. It's a bit like um, Narnia and Lord of the Rings. Narnia is much more like an allegory, whereas Lord of the Rings is much more like a parable. You don't look at Lord of the Rings for every single detail to have some kind of deeper spiritual meaning. You're more likely to get that out of Narnia. Well, if you read some of the early Christian commentators on this, they, they made the mistake of regarding it as an allegory, and so they did things like saying the wall was the law, and the tower was the temple, and the wine press was the altar. But that's not what the story is. The story is about a man who is rejected when he sends his servants and his son. Ultimately, he's rejected when he sends his son. And it's the story of God sending the prophets and the Jewish people to whom they had been sent, ultimately rejecting them and ultimately rejecting Jesus Christ. So I'm just going to ask... Who were doing the rejecting, first of all? And the answer is, and it's a shocking answer, really, it's the nation of Israel. God had especially blessed Israel for 1,500 years. They were the chosen people. It's an image that's used throughout the Old Testament. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 5, let's uh, read the passage there because this is directly corresponds. It's, this is the passage that Jesus is referring to. Isaiah 5, <coughs> I will sing for the one I love, from verse 1. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. It is an extraordinary story, the story of Israel. It's a story of how a people continually reject, generally continually reject what God has done for them. It's as though you have a particular project or something that, that you desire. If you're, if you're into gardening and you do all the work on your garden and it doesn't produce fruit, it just produces weeds. God had been incredibly patient. When you read this story, you find out how incredibly patient he is. One servant is beaten up. That's enough. That happens. You did that. If, if we took the scenario of someone coming to collect rent from your flat and you beat them up, that's the police and everyone else round at your door immediately. But not just one servant, but another one. And then another one that was struck on the head and treated shamefully. Then another one who was killed. Then many others that were sent. Sometimes people say about God, well, you know, this is not fair, as though we as human beings had a right to judge God. But there is no human being who would be as patient as God is, God was. Second Chronicles 36.16 says this, They mocked God's messengers, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against His people, and there was no remedy they mocked God's messengers, despised His words. I get, I I'm, find it incredibly sad when people who do not know Christ, people who don't go to church, people who have uh, no religion, if you like, which is apparently now about 50% of people in Britain, when they mock Christ and when they reject the little that they know of Christ. But that is not nearly as sad as people who go to church, who hear God's Word, and who reject it. It is not nearly as sad as those who profess to teach the Bible, and yet what they're teaching is not God's Word. Sometimes on Sunday morning the services are okay. This morning they weren't. On the, sorry, I wasn't meaning here in St. Peter's. That, was, that came out really wrong, didn't it? <laughs> I, I missed a sentence there. The sentence was uh, on the radio. I was listening to a service... I was listening to a service on the radio. Well, I might even... Well, never mind. I won't. I was listening to a service on the radio, and I kept thinking... I mean, it was... If I had hair, I would have pulled it out, but... What is wrong with this? What is wrong with this woman? What's wrong? And then I realized, do you know this? The whole service, the Bible's not been mentioned once. Not once was the Bible mentioned. And I, it was just so depressing and so discouraging. Well, how does God feel about the sin that He sees on the earth? We often have this image of God as not feeling anything. I think that's wrong. In Noah's day, we're told that it grieved the Lord that He had made mankind on the earth. It grieved the Lord. 
Well, we profess to be Christ's church, and yet it's incredible how the church has turned away from God. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7, do horses run on the rocky crags? Sorry, this is Amos. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there with oxen? You have turned the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. God had given them great, great privileges, and they turned against Him. These farmers had been given great privileges. They'd had a wall built around their vineyard. They'd had everything provided for them to do their business. They'd had guards and security and everything put there, and they turned these great privileges into something that was was evil and something that was wrong. I think that we have to be very careful too. We have been given great, great privileges. You read the history of Great Britain. You read the history of what's happened in uh, England and Scotland and Ireland and Wales. And the Lord has richly, richly blessed us. And yet, we are as quickly as possible turning away from so much of that as nations. But I also wonder in terms of churches, sometimes the great privileges that God has given us, and we seem to be turning away from that. One of the great sins in the New Testament church, as in the Old Testament church, are those who moan against the Lord. The old, there's an old hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. But we are not like that. We live in a culture which finds it very easy to moan, and we ourselves find it very easy to moan against the Lord. Because that's who, were they, who they were rejecting. They were rejecting this God who was not the God of popular imagination, but a generous God. All the provision was made for their life. A trusting God, a God who lets people free to run their lives, a patient God, one who keeps coming back again and again and again, a God who sent His Word through His prophets. They came and they tried to encourage the people to show fruit, but they were increasingly treated badly. They were, as you read the Old Testament, you find that, like here, they were firstly beaten, secondly disgraced and treated shamefully. In Middle Eastern culture, that was far worse than being beaten. So, for example, one of the customs would be have half your beard shaved off. Now, people would do that for a joke here, but in that culture, to have half your beard shaved off or to, to have half your clothing removed, to be shamed and disgraced and finally killed. And then above all, his son. He sends his son, and the Greek word here is the agapetos, the beloved one. Why would he do that? Why would he send the beloved one? You could hardly believe that when he is sent, that they would be so stupid and so wicked. Jesus here is indirectly, and it's only the second place he does this, is indirectly making a claim to be the Son of God. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Jesus knew that he was going to die. He quoted Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. 
The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. One of the great proofs in the Bible for the truth of the Bible and for the truth of Christianity is the prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus. We, it's one of the disadvantages of not knowing our Bibles well that we wouldn't be able to use that argument because we don't know these prophecies. But in the early church, they used that a lot, and uh, it, I think it's an important proof and an important teaching within the Bible. Uh, Ralph, who I'm praying for this morning, he was, he's away back to Edinburgh just now, to Nidri, and he's doing a course there on uh, the cross of uh, 60 days with the cross, every single day studying the cross. And it was lovely to hear Ralph today talking about something that some of you will go, yeah, I knew that. But he was talking about it with real excitement because it really blew his mind. He says, you know that there was, in, in, in the Old Testament, there was goats that were killed for us. And Jesus is, that was like saying about Jesus, like not one of his bones would be broken and they weren't allowed to bake, break the bones of the lamb. And Jesus, not one of his bones was broken. And he's telling us all the stuff that he's been learning in this course from the Old Testament prophecies. And we just go, yeah, yeah, no, we just need to know that Jesus died for us. Actually, we need to know more. Because these detailed prophecies in the Old Testament are really quite extraordinary. And the New Testament will quote them and quote this verse, the stone the builders rejected, several times. For example, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 7. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Then later on, we read (coughs) in Acts chapter 4. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Paul in Ephesians 2 verse 20 says, You are built, the church is built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. They are rejecting the cornerstone. This morning I mentioned a man who said, I'd like to be part of the church, um, but I don't believe in Jesus, and I don't really want to have anything to do with Jesus. And I know people smiled as that as being ridiculous. I think there are lots of churches in our land where Jesus is almost completely irrelevant. He's just a name. He's just an image. It's just a game that the churches are playing, rejecting the cornerstone. I got an email from a friend uh, today who uh, has just announced that he's leaving his church. In fact, I got two emails on that, but this one was from a, a friend who's a Church of Scotland minister. He's just announced that he's leaving. He, he just can't cope anymore. And I have every sympathy for him. The cornerstone is the keystone in the building, the one on which every other one depended. Rejecting Christ 
is to destroy his church, and rejecting Christ is to destroy your own life. I think that's what happens. This same pattern. We reject God, we reject his word, and above all, we reject his son. John chapter 1, it says this, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Why? Why would people do that? Was it because they did not have the Scriptures? They did. It's quoted there. You have read the Scriptures, he said. Haven't you read this Scripture? Don't you know this Scripture? Forgive me saying this, but it's almost as though Jesus is being a little bit sarcastic because he knows that they've read the Scriptures. And he's saying, haven't you read it? Don't you know it? I think it's extraordinary that the church in Britain today, there are so many who will say, well, we're not going to accept that part of the Bible. We're not going to accept this. That doesn't seem right to us. There's a Welsh clergyman who last week, uh, as a display of art, because if you say it's art, you can do anything, he cut out bits of the Bible because he said, I don't want, I don't want to believe in that kind of God. And what he did was horrible, and he's going to be in trouble with his church and so on. But in actual fact, that is what happens a lot. Haven't you read the Scriptures? Didn't they understand? Well, verse 12 indicates they did understand. They looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Sometimes people don't believe because they don't get it, because they don't grasp it. Sometimes people don't believe because they do get it, and they do grasp it, and yet they continue impenitent. Knowledge and conviction do not save a person's soul. They were greedy. They wanted to control the vineyard for themselves. And so much of our response to Jesus Christ is about issues of control, and it's about being in charge of our own lives. We say it's not God's world. We say it's not God's life. We say it's my life, and we admire and we celebrate Frank Sinatra's, I did it my way. We can have it our way. We can do it any way that we want. I think that's one of the reasons that people reject Jesus Christ, because it's not because they don't know. It's because even when they do know, the demands of Christ seem so unfair. And again, there's a big temptation in our culture for the church just to kind of water down these demands and say, yeah, yeah, it's you and Jesus, and you work things out together, and it's like a partnership and so on. And that's not what it is at all. Jesus, to become a Christian, you acknowledge Jesus as Lord over absolutely everything. I think they also rejected because they thought that God was far away. God is dead or too far away so we can do as we please. But God is not dead and God is not far away and the day of reckoning will come. Here's a very solemn warning in the literature of the time in the Roman literature, a man called Brutus collected a debt by a means of sending a, a force of cavalry and destroying the bad tenants before renting it out to other people. And it's possible that Jesus may have been aware of that story as well. But the overall message of Jesus' story is that it's a clear warning. If we refuse our privileges and our responsibilities, they'll be passed on to someone else. God will be glorified with or without you. Now, what's the alternative to that? The crowd had already sung Psalm 118 uh, in the previous chapter, in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
It's telling us that there's a new order coming. It's telling us that through Christ, through His disciples, on the day of Pentecost, after the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, there is a, a new birth of the church. And what we have to do is we have to recognize that, and instead of rejecting, to accept Jesus Christ. So in Acts 2, verse 36, if you turn over to that, this is Peter applying this. And again, he's applying this psalm. Acts 2, 36, he said, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The obvious alternative to rejecting Jesus Christ is accepting Him. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, says to his own people, you killed the Messiah. You rejected the Messiah. Yet this Jesus has been raised from the dead and has been made both Lord and Christ. And the people were cut to the heart. They didn't excuse them. They said, what can we do? And he says, you have to repent and be baptized. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And not just that, verse 40 says, with many other words, he pleaded with them. There is nothing in the early church of people going, okay, take it or leave it. I don't care. You want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. You don't want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. It's your choice. There's a sense of urgency that's in that, that he, he's saying, please don't go this route. Please don't turn away from Jesus Christ. Please don't reject Jesus. And I think I would say exactly the same to you. It's great when you have uh, new freshers come into church and so on, but one of the things that I, I reflect upon sometimes is I think of all the students I know who've come to this city and all the ones I can remember anyway, and I think of great um, people who've come as unbelievers and who've left as brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's wonderful. But I think of other people who've come and who've come to the church here, and, but when they leave, they've, they've turned away. They haven't come to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And maybe any faith that they had before, they've just rejected it and, and gone away. And, and it's just such a tragedy. It's just such a loss because it's not about religion it's about life. It's about death. It's about eternity. It's about heaven. And it's about hell. The last thing you want anyone to do is to reject Christ. It's greatly, always been greatly taken with the story of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an evangelist in the 19th century who came across to Scotland. Um, to put it mildly, he wasn't a Calvinist and didn't get on too well with quite a lot of people. He was being criticized at one point and about his methods of evangelism. And he said, you may be right, but I prefer the way I evangelize to the way that you don't. Which 
was actually a pretty astute answer. Moody was in Glasgow, walking along Socky Hall Street, and he stopped in one of the doorways, tears pouring down his face as he saw all the people walking past, as he saw it, without Christ. It's funny that, not funny in the ha-ha, but funny peculiar that the church in Britain has largely lost that emphasis. It's become legalistic and inward-looking and insular, or we've forgotten the lostness of people. And we need to get that back. But if people reject Christ, let me finish with this. How do you actually accept Christ? What does that mean to accept Christ? Turn with me to Romans chapter 10, and I think the simplest and most, most straightforward explanation in the midst of what is a very uh, difficult book in some ways. Romans 10 and verse, we'll just read from verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Here's Paul saying, these people have rejected Christ. My heart's desire is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Their zeal is not based on knowledge. They have a zeal without knowledge. My next door neighbors are Muslim. I think they're zealous, but they have a zeal without knowledge. There are a lot of people who are religious who have a zeal without knowledge. There are people who say that they're not religious and want to live a moral life and a good life, but they have a zeal without knowledge. We need to get knowledge. Let me carry on reading this. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses describes in this way the righteousness that is by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up. Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean to accept Christ? It means to accept, first of all, that we don't know. And secondly, to get knowledge, to try and grasp and to try and understand. From God's Word, we get that knowledge from His Word. And it means that we confess. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We actually have an incredibly simple message with incredibly widespread and complex consequences, but it is essentially a very, very straightforward and very simple message. And it's a message that people need to hear. It's a message that you need to hear. It's a message that your friends need to hear, that your family needs to hear. And you need to communicate it to them 
but you also need to bring them to hear it. The Samaritan woman, after she'd been met with Jesus, she went back to her village and she said, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. To accept Christ is to hear about Christ, is to believe what is said about Christ, is to confess Jesus Christ, and is to follow Jesus Christ. It is to call upon Him and ask Him to save you. To reject Christ can be as extreme as yelling blasphemous abuse. It can be to ignore and stay away. Or it can just simply be to sit in a church and to listen to a sermon like this and say, maybe another time, maybe another day, maybe once. But how do you know he'll ask again? And how do you know that there'll be another day? We talked this morning of a door that Christ says, come on in. We're invited in. We're welcome in. Why would anyone reject Jesus Christ? Why would you reject Jesus Christ? Why would you turn away from Him? I actually really want to know the answer to that. And if you're serious about this stuff, I want you to take time and talk to another Christian. Talk to me. Talk to someone about why you would reject. And if you are a Christian, I want you to think about how Christ makes us His ambassadors and He makes His plea through us to other people. And I want you to pray that God would give you opportunities to share who Jesus Christ is, not so that you can feel good about yourself, not so that you can annoy people, but just to have opportunities to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to people. Everyone, it says here, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray that we'll see that in our own situation. I believe God is doing something in our own church. I believe God is doing something in this city. I'm not quite sure what it is. But it has to be, it must be, if it's to have any effect, it must be that there will be many people who will call on the name of the Lord. And we pray and long for that. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. If there's any one of us here and you alone know our hearts, who's cold to you, who's turning away from you, Lord, turn us back. Help us to accept you. If we don't know what that means, show us what that means. But don't let us turn away, not with any excuse, Lord. We ask that we would commit our hearts, our lives to follow you from this time forward. And if we have been those who have rejected you, those who have crucified you, those who because of our sins have nailed you to that cross, Lord, help us as we repent and as we receive your forgiveness and as we receive newness of life.
We bless you, O Lord, that you did not reject us, but that you call us and you plead with us and you draw us to yourself. Lord, we ask simply that not one person in this building would go out of this building rejecting you. Lord, don't let us make excuses. And each of us pray for our loved ones. We pray for our families. We pray for children and parents. We pray, O Lord, for partners. We pray for boyfriends and girlfriends. We pray for uh, people we meet at work, our, our work colleagues. We pray, O Lord, for those whom we like being with, whom we love and whom we admire and who are lost. And we ask our God that you would be so gracious to us and to them that somehow we would be able to communicate who you are so that they too would accept and would know you whom to know is life indeed. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, as well as Christian commentary on the latest current affairs in Scotland, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.